Tecmo Bowl. And all the men said, Amen. And if you had brothers, you understand growing up what the words Tecmo Bowl mean. In 1987, this was a video game that was released, and there has never been a greater video game ever created. Amens all around. I didn't know this was what was going to liven you up. We'd have talked about Tecmo Bowl uh, sooner. But as a middle schooler around 1988, this game was all I wanted for Christmas, had friends who had the game and I'd played it and this is what I wanted for this Christmas. And so just to make sure, my parents were always very gracious around Christmas. It was a, it was a big deal in our home Christmas morning, but I wanted to make sure that I got this game. So I went to my grandmother and I said, this is what I want you to get me for Christmas. She never failed me around Christmas when I asked for something specific. And I never forget when I noticed my Christmas gift under her tree. I went over and looked, and yeah, there's my name there on the package. And I picked up the gift, and I began to inspect um, the, the wrapping. And I began to try to look through the, the creases in the wrapping paper and see what exactly what this gift was, because it was bigger than a video game didn't look like a video game, and I began to fill around the gift, and I soon realized this was not Tecmo Bowl. This was some kind of notebook, and I was extremely disappointed because I was thinking my grandmother got me a trapper keeper for Christmas, <laughs> and nothing's wrong with trapper keepers, but I think by 1988, they were already out of style, and I'm thinking, what in the world, why would she get me a notebook? And I realized that's exactly what this is, some kind of notebook, and I didn't collect stickers, I didn't do things like that. What in the world is this? And then on Christmas morning, I finally got the gift, and I was already disappointed. I'd been disappointed for weeks. I didn't want to say anything to her, but I kind of seethed in frustration and anger every time I looked under the tree thinking, a notebook, really? What is, what is she thinking? I was very specific. I think I even wrote it down. This is what I want. And I opened up the gift just in case, and, and there it was. it was. It was one of those notebooks that you collect baseball cards in. And I collected baseball cards and uh, that was a big deal to me, but I thought, why in the world would she get me uh, a, a notebook for my baseball cards? And I remember all the family was there, cousins, aunts, uncles, and, and I remember sitting through that most of that Christmas just pouting, thinking, this is the worst Christmas ever. I had thought for months, I'm getting Tecmo Bowl this year only to be disappointed with a notebook for my baseball cards. How am I going to play with that? Well, what am I going to do with that through Christmas Day? And I remember just sulking, and you know how it is. You've seen it, and you'll see it this Christmas. Little kids who don't get what they want, self-centered over to the side, and people are, what's wrong with you? Nothing. <laughs> Yet I knew exactly what was wrong with me. Well, when Paul writes the letter to the Philippians, 
He's combating this sort of self-centered pouting among the believers there. There are a group of believers who are in conflict and they're not getting their way. And this church that was once full of joy because of their sacrifice, they are even sacrificing for Paul who is in prison. And Paul looks upon this church as an example of joy and sacrificial service. There's a group of believers in the church who are pouting because they're not getting what they want. And Paul says, for the sake of joy and unity in the church, you've got to be sacrificial. You've got to consider others as more important than yourself and not worry about getting what you want. You've got to do nothing from selfish ambition. And to give examples of this sacrificial service, he talks about a man named Epaphroditus who is sent from this church to Paul uh, with a gift for Paul while he is serving and in prison for the sake of the gospel. And on the way back to the church, Epaphroditus almost dies. And Paul says, that's what selfless sacrifice looks like. And that's going to bring you the most joy in the church. And that's what's going to unify the church. He talks about a man named Timothy who is sacrificial for the sake of the gospel. He even talks about himself as he is suffering in prison for the sake of the gospel. And he says, these are the things that are going to bring you the most joy in the church and the most unity in the church. It's not clamoring for what you want. It's serving others, thinking less of yourself and honoring and thinking more of others. This is the heart of unity, joyful sacrifice in the church. And as we see in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2, this is the heart of the Christmas story. The ultimate example of joyful sacrifice, Paul will say, is Jesus Christ who is Lord. The king of glory has given us the way to joy, the way to happiness. And he has established for us the source of unity in the church. And so today we see how the incarnation establishes and gives a pattern, not just for humility, but humility that leads to unity in the body of Christ. And we see that, first of all, beginning in verse 5. Notice what we see first here is incarnation and status. Notice verse 5. Paul says, if you're going to have this sacrificial joy, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He says, have this mindset, this way of thinking, This word isn't just to think a certain way. It is to think a certain way that affects what you do. A better way to translate it would be have this disposition, this ready disposition in the church among yourselves, among the body of Christ, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And as we've talked about for weeks, Jesus Christ is the Savior King or the king who saves, the anointed one, the promised one that God has set aside to deliver us from our sins. And he says, you have this mindset which you have in the Messiah. Now notice the last part of verse five, in Christ, 
in Christ Jesus. And this is important terminology for the Apostle Paul. All the time he's talking about being in Christ. Now, what does he mean by that? In Christ means when you believe in Christ and you trust Christ, you are credited by God with his death on the cross. It is given to you as your death for your sin. When you believe in Christ, you are credited with his righteousness. It is though you never sinned and lived a perfect life before God. When you believe, when you trust in him, you are given those things in Christ. And positionally, before God, you are in Christ and God looks upon you as Christ. With all of his righteousness, guiltless and forgiven because of his death. And he says, there is a certain way of thinking that you have in Christ. You're not just positionally before God in Christ. Being in Christ affects the way you think and how you act in the church. Notice he says, this is yours in Christ. Notice, what is this mindset? Verse six, who? Referring to Jesus who though he was in the form of God. Now this word form, it doesn't mean some sort of mysterious disguise. The word form actually means essence or nature. Though he was in essence God, though he had the nature of God because he is God, everything it means to be God, Jesus had. And here we rub up against the 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 truth of the Trinity. We don't worship a generic God. We worship a God who is Trinity. And here he refers to Jesus who is one of three distinct persons, and yet they're all equal in deity. And you've got to understand, the God we worship isn't generic. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you can't be a Christian and deny the Trinity. And here he refers to the second person of the Trinity, the Son. And he says, He is God. He, he has the exact nature and essence of God. But notice, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, this word equality means status. Because he's God, he has the rights and privilege, authority power of God because he is God and yet he did not count equality this status notice with God a thing to be grasped and this word grasp is so important in this passage it means to hold tightly it means to cling to at certain times it means to rob or still and so you have Jesus who is God the status of God power of God Rights, because he is God, and yet he is not stealing that for his own benefit. He's not holding on to it. He, he, he's not robbing others of his deity or his status. Notice verse seven, but he emptied himself. Now this word means to pour out, but not to pour out as if it doesn't exist any longer. He pours out in use for others. So he doesn't cling to his status. He pours it out for the good of others. And we see that in 
his sacrifice for others. Notice that the text continues by taking the form of a servant. So we go from the essence and likeness of God to, to now he, is, he has the essence and likeness of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Now he has the essence and likeness of a man. And so the one who is God takes on the likeness of a slave to serve. How does he do that? He becomes a man to serve us. So he doesn't cling to his status as God. He takes on the status of a slave. How does he do that? By becoming a man. And that's what we've talked about for the last several weeks, the the way in which the eternal word, the eternal son of God takes on human form, human likeness, takes on everything it means to be a man. The womb of Mary is set apart so God's king can come and occupy humanity, becoming a man, taking on flesh. And so here we see a humiliation in the status of the son. Now, what does that do for us? Back to that concept of being in Christ. His humiliation of status exalts our status. 100% God doesn't cling to that, becomes 100% man to serve us, to become a slave for us. How does he do that? He lives a perfect life in our place and he dies a perfect sacrifice for us so that when we believe in him, we are in Christ, we are sons in the son, and so our status is exalted. So he humiliates his status to exalt our status. Now, why is that important for us? Because if we have the same status as Christ, we are to have the same, go back to it, mind of Christ. If we have the same status of Christ in Christ, we are to think like Christ. And so what does that mean for you today? Well, we see his example here. To think like Christ means I am not clinging to my rights. I am not clinging to my authority. I am not clinging to my privileges that may be rightly mine. I'm not clinging to those things. I'm not robbing others of their good because of those things. I am letting go of those things. Things like money, power, the power to make decisions, recognition, respect, my time. I don't cling to those things that are mine. But for the sake of others, like Christ, thinking like Christ, I pour those things out for the good of others. And that's only possible if you are in Christ. Because in Christ, you have everything you need. And your status, the things that you have in this world, do not define you. They do not define you before God. But they are to be used to display the gospel before the world. And so your status in the world, it doesn't define you but it is meant to display the gospel in the world. And the greater your status in the world is a greater opportunity for humiliation and the reflection of the gospel. Your status isn't irrelevant. Jesus' status as king of glory wasn't irrelevant, but he used it and leveraged for the glory of God for our good. And so think about all the ways in which God has blessed you. Even with status, 
resources, things that are ours, the way people look at you, the way you're recognized in the world. And what Christmas should do is it should call you to consider, are you clinging to those things? Are you the selfish little brat over in the corner clinging to what should be yours? Or are you pouring those things out for the good of others? You are miserable when you cling to those things. Jesus is the happiest being in the, in the universe right now because he lets go of his even deity and status as God for the good of others. And we see that clearly at Christmas and in the incarnation. The creator who deserved to be worshiped in heaven and on earth comes and he becomes a nobody Born in a nowhere place like Bethlehem to parents who are insignificant. And so you consider that in your own life. Are you clamoring to be known? Maybe you're here today and you deserve to be known. Maybe you've done a lot of work for recognition. Are you clamoring and clinging to that in a way that is causing you to pull away from others? And one of the things we can do as Christians and we should do as Christians to model Jesus is we should do a lot of things nobody knows about. You should strategically this week think about things you can do for others that can't be instant, grammed, I guess. That would be a better verb, right? That, That nobody, you can't take a picture of it. Maybe you show up at someone's house and pray for them and nobody's ever gonna know about it. Maybe you know someone who is struggling and yet you give to meet their needs and bless them and nobody's going to know about it. The one who deserves all recognition in heaven and on earth became a nobody. We can let go of that. The sovereign sustainer of all things became a baby who had to be sustained and nursed and his diaper had to be changed. He became weak and helpless And maybe you have a position where your title says you get the last word. You call the shots. And you have developed and cultivated in your life a way of leading others that makes your life easier. And you require things of others that makes their life harder. Maybe this week because of Christmas, because of the incarnation, you strategize and you think, how can I use my position to make the life of others easier, even if it makes my life harder? There are projects that I should require that need to get done immediately, but I'm going to help others with what they need to get done. I'm going to stay late. No, I deserve to be with my family. No, I'm going to stay late. Why? Why? Because there is one who stepped out of heaven to serve me. So I'm going to serve you even if you don't deserve it. And even if I deserve me time. That's what the gospel, what the incarnation does for us. The nativity scene is a picture of one who was rich but became poor for us. Maybe in the business world, as an employer, you you have opportunity to leverage your status, not for your own profit, But you have an opportunity to organize your business in a way that constantly blesses others. We have so many examples of that here at Ashland Church where folks take their position and they take their money and they take their income and they don't use it for themselves. They lavishly bless others. Why? Because that's what the incarnation calls us to do. 
At Christmas, we see the one who is all wise, who becomes a nobody and eventually is seen as an absolute fool. Jesus is walking around as this carpenter's son born to Mary, talking about he is the Messiah, talking about he is the king of the world, talking about if you would follow him, you would have eternal life. And everybody looked upon him as a fool. And maybe you're here today and the letters next to your name demand that people respect you for your wisdom. And yet you don't cling to that because you're not ashamed of the gospel. And you begin to talk about this kooky, weird, supernatural stuff of virgin birth, of all of these these weird things like floods and boats and resurrection. Why? Because you're not clinging to the prestige of, of academia. You're willing to let that go for the sake of the gospel and the good of others. How will you reflect the incarnation and letting go of your status. Notice the text continues. To what extent do we do this? Notice next, incarnation and sacrifice. Verse eight, being found in human form. Again, everything it meant to be a man. 100% God takes on everything it means to be man, human form. He humbled himself. And the word humble means to lower. And notice it's not... He was humbled. It's a decision. It's intentional. He he chooses humility. And that's what it means to be humble, is that you strategically choose to lower yourself and serve others. And he does this. How does he do it? He becomes obedient. Now, the word obedient, so all these words are important, by the way. I keep saying that. Obedient. Who is he obedient to? The Father. It is the Father's plan that he would become a man. And everything Jesus the Son is doing as he lives his life is in obedience to the Father. And so he's humbling himself to obey the Father. How far does he go with his obedience to the point of death? And first of all, he says physical death. God, creator of life, humbles himself to the point of death, no life. Isn't that amazing? The one who spoke life into existence takes on the opposite, the contrast, the other end of the spectrum, death. But he doesn't stop there, from life to death, but even this, death on a cross Now, first of all, we have to understand a cross is is seen as an instrument of torture. The Romans used it to mock criminals. And so he goes from righteous in heaven to convicted, unrighteous on earth, on a cross. But also we read in the Old Testament, it's quoted in Galatians, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so there's more to his death and there's more to his cross than we see at first. A cross was a cursed death, but his death is is more than just a generic death. He is cursed on a tree, which means he is cursed by God. He goes from equality with God, status with God, 
full life in heaven, joy in heaven, ruling and reigning in heaven to a cross forsaken by God. In the New Testament, the word cross becomes synonymous with wrath bearing. When we speak of Jesus' cross, we understand that he is enduring the judgment we deserve for our sin, bearing the wrath of God for us. So he goes from love of God, fellowship with God, to wrath and judgment of God on the cross. That's the extent of his obedience. That's the extent of his humiliation. And what we see here is the culmination of the incarnation is crucifixion taking on flesh to be crucified. That's the extent of his obedience to the Father. And it's not just generic. He's just. He's perfect. He deserves heaven. And yet he is dying for the unjust who deserve hell. That is the extent of his humiliation here. But but that's what sums up his obedience Jesus' obedience to the Father is culminated in unconditional sacrifice. Christ-likeness is defined by unconditional sacrifice for others. If you want to know if you are becoming more like Christ, you can answer the question real quick. How much are you sacrificing for others? That's what obedience of the Son looks like. That's the extent of his humility. You want to know if you're a humble person? How much are you sacrificially serving for others? Godliness isn't defined by how much time you spend in Bible study. It's not even defined by how much time you spend in prayer. It's not defined by church attendance. It's not defined by sharing the gospel. It's not even defined by mission trips. Godliness is defined by unconditional sacrifice for others. And you can do all of those things, but if it doesn't culminate in being inconvenienced for others, choosing it for others, then it's not Christ-likeness because the one who had all glory chooses death for you and I who don't deserve it. And so how is that going in your life? What does that look like in your life? If the Spirit of God is conforming you to the image of Christ, you're going to feel calls of inconvenience on your life. Now, the sad thing is, we live in a culture where individuality has driven us to the point where we consider inconvenience as others as bad. There are some people you will meet with who will tell you, you think too much of others. Don't feel guilty for thinking about yourself. That's paganism. That's secular psychology. That's not Bible. The Spirit of God in our life calls us to serve others. Self-care isn't a noble thing in the Bible. No, caring for others is a joyful thing, according to Christ. And if you don't believe me, look at Jesus. Do you want to be like Jesus? He had all rights to me time in heaven. He, did, he should not have ever had to think about us, much less inconvenience himself to a cursed cross to be crucified for our sins. And yet some of us, are squelching the spirit 
in our life because we see that as a bad thing. Now, the problem is this. Some of you have so cluttered your life with busyness and stuff that is meaningless and stuff that doesn't matter for eternity that when I call you to really love and care and forgive and serve others, you think that's an inconvenience. No, that's where you start. How am I inconveniencing for others? And then do I have time for all this other stuff? That's where you start. And so for some of us here today to sacrifice for others and be like Jesus, you need to just sit down and purge yourself of the stuff that you're doing for yourself. And think about, this is what my schedule looks like. This is what my time looks like. This is where our priorities are. This has to do with me. This is all about me. How can I take my time my stra- and strategize my schedule for the sake of others? And you're going to realize you got more time than you ever thought you had. You're also going to realize you probably don't serve others as much as you think you do. And yet Christmas calls us to this. Think about this. This is the one time of the year where we watch all the movies, where we hear all of the classic stories, and the spirit of Christmas just swoops in, and we're all of a sudden smiling, and we're all of a sudden so giving. I mean, Scrooges are giving more than the Jelly of Mont Club, so we can put the pool in, and everybody's happy. There's something good about that. In that Christmas is calling us to think about others, and we're usually more happy when we think about others. But it's not just some generic sentimentality. The real spirit of Christmas calls us beyond fuzzy sentimentality, beyond a silent night, to a gruesome cross. And that's what scares some of you here today. You realize if you embrace the cross, you're going to have to embrace inconvenience for others. You're going to have to put that time card down that you have. And you say, I will give this much time and that's it for the sake of others. I won't be inconvenienced beyond this. All notifications off. You got to put that down and you're going to have to be ready to respond to others. That's why church membership is so important because you can't time that out. You can't schedule that out. You're going to get a prayer request that you can't just respond praying and going back to what you're doing. No, you're going to have to get up off of the couch. You're going to have to get out, maybe at times you don't want to, and go to people's houses and pray for them and serve them and fix them meals. You're going to have to do stuff for other people and not think so much about yourself. That's what the incarnation does for us because Jesus is the example of that. He chose to inconvenience himself for us. You're going to have to go to places where you don't want to go and serve people you don't want to serve. You're going to have to love and forget. Love your enemies at times. Family members you haven't spoken to in years. Maybe you show up at Christmas this year and because of Christmas, the incarnation, you rush over to them and see how they're doing. Maybe you rush over and pray for them. Maybe you serve them. That's what the incarnation does for us as Christians. We love, forgive, and serve in ways that are inconvenient. And I just want to be clear, that's not bad. And that's not going to kill you. 
No, he killed Jesus for you. How about we reflect him in this mindset? Notice the text continues, verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Now, immediately we see something. Because of his humiliation, he is exalted. We see incarnation leads to exaltation. Because of what he has done, he is exalted. And it just gets better. He has gone from the highest of high to the lowest of low, and now he is exalted. We could even say here beyond where he was before, if that was even possible. At least the explanation is of that. He is highly exalted. The Old Testament talks about the most high, the highest ruler. Now he is highly exalted and bestowed on him or given him the honor. All these words refer to honor. Given him the honor of the name that is above every name. So because of his humiliation, God has named him, honored him in a way no one else ever has been or ever will be honored, but it comes in the form of a name, a reputation that is above all other reputation. Notice, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. He's given the highest name and highest reputation and all other names and all other reputation will submit to his. He has the most exaltation. No one will be exalted and everyone will bow before his name. What is the name? Jesus, Savior. Do you see that? Humiliation leads to exaltation. Saving guilty sinners, Jesus, Savior, leads to being exalted above everyone and every name. And notice what happens. Every knee should bow. Every person will bow before the Savior. In heaven and on earth, and notice this, under the earth. The angels in heaven cover their feet in the presence of Jesus because of his name. He has done what no other being could do and he has saved us from our sins and all of heaven bows before him. And all of earth, those who believe in his name, bow before him and submit to him as savior. But notice this, and under earth, he refers here to hell There will be people in hell forever who are enduring the justice for their sin who will look to Jesus and say, yes, and he was the only one who could save us from our sin. Highly exalted as sacrificial savior. Sacrifice leads to exaltation. Verse 11, and every tongue confess. This means to admit that Jesus Christ, the savior king, is Lord. He is master. Now notice where this is gone. Highest of high, lowest of low, highest of high, and even more than that, master. Paul is at pains to say how highly this one who humiliated himself is now exalted to Lord and master and sovereign over all things. No one has more control. No one has more power than him. But notice this, this resounds to the glory of God the Father. There's something subtle there. All Jesus has done and all Jesus is still, still at the end of the day exalted Lord 
is for the glory of the Father. And we see his humility even in this moment. The one who is seated at the right hand above everybody else and every other being ruling and reigning still in his rule and reign stands there to give glory to the Father. We see Jesus, the essence of who he is, is humility. We even see humility in the Godhead here. Notice the Son humbles himself for our good, for our salvation. God's glory and our good never compete. He humbles himself for our salvation, but it always goes to the Father's glory. But notice what the Father has done here. The Father's plan in saving us ends with the Son exalted. We see the humility of the Son, the humility of the Father. They're giving glory to one another, and the Spirit, who's not even mentioned here, is the one who applies all of this to our hearts so that we praise Jesus, exalt Jesus, to the glory of the Father. There's humility mixed all in here. It's the essence of the, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit's relationship. They love one another, and in humility, they are constantly serving one another, giving one another glory in humility. And here's the point Paul is making. If humility unifies God, it must unify the church. At the end of the day, God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are on mission to exalt Jesus. And they are unified on that mission. And that's what must unify us as a church. The mission to make Jesus famous. Jesus is the only name in lights around here. Jesus Christ. Now think about that name. The name itself sums up humility. Jesus Christ, King who saves. And so we exalt humility. <laughs> we praise humility in a person, Jesus Christ. And Paul's point here is church, a church full of folks who themselves think they are Savior, King, and Lord is a miserable place. Little pouty kids over to the side. I want what I want. It's misery. But a church where we are reflecting the humility of the Savior, there is great joy. One of the points Paul is making here is it's hard to worship a king who became a slave and washed the feet of his enemies, Judas, and died for sinners. It's hard to worship him, exalt him, and then get over in our little corner and say, this is only what I'm going to do, and push everybody away and divide and create conflict over my power and my ministry. It's you can't do that if you're exalting humility. You're a hypocrite. It doesn't make any sense. But if we exalt Jesus Christ, we're going to be unified with one another in our humility because it begins with our humility before him. It's hard to exalt someone who has died for your sins, a king who has died for your sins, and then hold grudges against one another. That doesn't make any sense. There's dissonance in your heart and your mind when you choose to do that. You can't exalt a God who became a man and think too much of yourself in the church. You can't do it. It's impossible. And so Paul writes to this church and he says, if everyone is exalting the most humble one, you shouldn't have conflict. You shouldn't be at one another's throats. You shouldn't be divided. No, you should be serving. 
And you should be full of joy and unity. But it begins with each of us. Today, your sin, as you read this, your greatest sin here today is believing that you are your own Savior, your own King, and you deserve Lordship. That's what leads to that selfish misery in your life. And today, there's an opportunity to repent of that by faith, to repent of trust, Repent of trying to be your own savior. See, some of you are here today and you think one day you're going to get to a point where you have some sort of status and that's what's going to rescue you from unhappiness. And you are working day in and day out not to let go of status, but to get more status. And you think at some point on social media, in the break room, among your friend group, in the office, that you're going to get a status and you're going to get to that status point and you're going to be happy. Happiness is letting go of your status and not chasing it. Some of you think you're going to achieve some sort of status before God and he's finally going to be happy with you and you're going to feel that. Repentance today is saying the only status I know is status today of sinner who by faith becomes a son in the son. And it is his status, his righteousness, his death in my place that saves me. He is the only savior. And you empty yourself of such pride and you trust in him. Some of you need to repent today of trying to be your own king. You think you are the center of the universe and we all by nature drift in that way. And we drift to thinking, I deserve happiness at all cost. And some of us here today believe that with, with all of our, that is the gospel that you believe. And one of the things that you're trying to do in your own heart and your mind is you're trying to change your convictions. You're trying to change truth. You're trying to position yourself as a victim to truth. Why? Because you want to call the shots to the point you even want to create your truth. Immorality is just different for me. It's just different. And so you reach in and you try to change what is real and what is true and what is reality because you think you're king. We have a track in the back today you need to read. It's called Two Ways to Live. And you can live as though you are king or Jesus is king. And the point is, you're only going to be happy when you choose Jesus as king. Repent of trying to be your own king today. Some of you come in here today and you think you are the Lord, exalted above everyone else. Now, you wouldn't say it that way, but you are asserting your wisdom and your control, and you're thinking, if God would just see the world my way, and I wouldn't have to suffer, and I wouldn't have to endure difficulty, if I could could just call the shots and control things, and you're racked with anxiety, you know why you're racked with anxiety? It's because you're trying to reach out and be Lord. And human history and God's plan and God's design is headed to one Lord that you will confess and make famous forever. And his name is Jesus. And you're fighting against that and you want to be Lord. And the best thing for you today is repent of your Lordship and bow and confess Jesus is Lord. And there's great hope in that, by the way. God is on a mission to teach me and you we're not him And most of our misery is just fighting against that. And some of us, it takes our whole life to understand when I just let go of that, I'm way more happier. When I let him call the shots, because that's what he's going to do forever is, Lord, there's happiness and joy. You know what it leads? Sacrifice for others. 
The reality is the kid in the first nativity scene will be famous forever as Savior, King, and Lord. But notice the text. Everyone's eventually going to admit it. Will you admit it today? Will you confess it today? Or will you be the little miserable kid who all you need and all you want is really right in front of you, who goes over to the side and pouts and sulks? And this is... This is how so many of us live our life. My grandmother finally noticed how miserable I was and looked across the room and she was taking great delight in my misery because she knew this was going to happen. And she finally said, open the notebook. And there inside, with all of its glory, I still remember the face mask on the player Tech Mobile, right there, right in front of me. But how many of us are seething and wasting time and wasting Christmas after Christmas, year after year, miserable and making everybody around us miserable? As if God hasn't given us what we wanted. And yet Christmas is to humiliate us and remind us in the incarnation, not just a gift we would ask for, but more than we could ever want or even pray for in the incarnation of Jesus Christ.